You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmorecc.com. Now here's Pastor Artie Favre with today's message. Uh, one of the things that, that um, an author noted in, 2000, in the year 2000 is that, is that evangelicalism had become preoccupied with gospels of sin management. It's all about, I mean, if, if it would be anathema to a lot of folks to talk about the gospel without talking a lot about sin. And so it's, you're a sinner, God has to judge sin, God has done this to take care of your sin so you can be forgiven of your sin, and here's what God has been put in place as you continue to sin so that you can repent and, and so forth. And, and, and almost there are even psychologists that specialize in unique trauma that is experienced from individuals who grew up in toxic or unhealthy churches and specifically evangelical churches and some of the neuroses that comes from this shame-based sin-focused reality and the problem is a gospel of sin management is an idolatry because at the end of the day when we hear the gospel we should not be thinking about our sin but about our savior and so it puts our focus on the wrong place. And one of the things that this author was talking about is somehow the prayer is that we can go through a season where we move from being preoccupied with gospels of sin management and go back to the biblical gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached whenever he walked the earth. And I think that that is something. I, you know, I used to think that religion has sustained itself because of the dogma of brilliant minds and leadership, but I no longer believe that's true. Now, I think that they have a, com- a, 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 a contribution to make, and I'm grateful for it, but in the end, the power of the religious life is not in the organizational dogma. It is in the experience of individuals who consistently are transformed by encountering the living Christ. That's what makes it powerful. That's what sustains it. And that's what we are striving and endeavoring to build here is a community of individuals who are experiencing transformation from encountering the living Christ. And at the end of the day, a gospel of spiritual transformation, that is the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is not primarily a gospel about sin management. And so I don't think a religion of sin management has the power to sustain, but encountering the living Christ and experiencing spiritual transformation, this can sustain us in this life and beyond. And one of the ways that we encounter that spiritual transformation is simply by looking at the scriptures and studying and reflecting on what they teach about the real power and substance of the gospel and then be willing to say, okay, if I have a tradition that is loosely based on these scriptures but is largely preoccupied with ideas that are not overtly taught by Jesus and overtly celebrated in the in in the scriptures, then maybe it's okay for me to let go of some of these man-centered traditions that have been passed on to me and begin to change my mind about a few things in accordance to the leading of the Spirit and what is revealed by the scriptures. So let's take just a moment and look at this powerful concept that Paul is going to celebrate and articulate here in this passage. We're going to be looking at Colossians 1 verses 24 through 27. 
I'm going to start in 24 because that's where the paragraph starts. But of course, I'm not going to make many comments on that because we talked a lot about that last week. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now this ministry, I mean this mystery, I believe is the foundational, powerful secret of the Christian faith. And we're going to celebrate it with Paul in just a few minutes. But first of all, I want to look at a few things. You remember, the way we approach our study of the scriptures at Christ Community as best we can, not presuming that we do it perfectly, but we really want to honor audience relevancy and we want to honor the context of scripture. So we, we, are, we are learning to discipline ourselves to study the scripture by reading it as his story and then their story, which would be two-thirds Old Covenant Israel and about one-third first-century Christians. So we want to read it's his story, their story, and we want to, as best we can, understand how they may have heard these things and these ideas. And then we want to say, then what does this mean for our story and then finally for my story? So let's take a minute here and let's take a look at Paul's story as he writes these words. And what he says is that, is that he lived from a sense of responsibility. So one of the things I take away from that is, as Paul, you know, Paul once wrote, follow me as I follow Christ. So he holds himself up as a model for us to follow and to emulate insofar as his life is preoccupied with faithfulness to Jesus. And so as we think through that, what we can see, what one of the things that Paul is modeling is that he lived his life from an internal sense of calling and commissioning that formed the core identity of how who he understood himself to be. And so we see here that he lives from this sense of responsibility because in the way he phrases it, his call to minister isn't a choice, it's a commission. He didn't think of it as a choice, he thought of it as a commission. God commissioned Paul to steward the full message of the word of God. And it's really important to look at the language that Paul uses, particularly in verse 26. Paul is making a radical claim. He is making a claim that if anyone today made it uh, and they were a pastor, they probably would be out of the job because what he is suggesting is that he has been commissioned to make fully known that which has been hidden before. Now, can you imagine if you were part of the leader of, of, of Israel and you're hearing a message like this Paul is coming along and saying I'm not saying you guys are wrong but you are incomplete and to the extent that you act on that which is incomplete is the extent that you're wrong but it's not your fault that it's incomplete because God has chosen to allow it to remain hidden until the fullness of time and that fullness of time has come and I have been commissioned to be the one to reveal the full nature of this mystery that has been hidden and a lot of us uh, I don't think are taught the reality that that is the stuff from which our Christian faith was born. This idea that a man could claim that I've got the secret, the mysteries revealed to me, and it's been hidden for the ages. But that's how he lived. 
In fact, what he says here is, God's commissioned him to steward the full message of the word of God. The word of God is incomplete until the mystery is revealed. The word of God is incomplete until the mystery is revealed. And to whom, to make it even more offensive, to whom was Paul commissioned to reveal this mystery? To the Gentiles. This is where we're part of the story finally. I know that you were told to read yourself into it from the very beginning, but sorry, that part of the story is not about us. But now we're getting to the point almost to where we're the post credit scene in an MCU movie, almost like a postscript. Now the Gentile storyline gets to get worked in, and this is you. Paul was commissioned to unveil a mystery, and in specific, he was in commission to unveil that mystery to the Gentile believers who would respond to it once it has been unveiled. Now, this word mystery, I really like. This word mystery is very, very important because as long as I still hold God in some sense mystery, and what I mean is what I didn't know about God 10 years ago, but understand about him today, that's a little less clouded in mystery. But today there are things that I don't understand that I will not understand until, until 10 years later down the road. That aspect of God is still surrounded by mystery for me. And mystery is important because mystery is the thing that equips us to have a posture of humility because we don't have all the answers. And it also gives us a gift of being able to be in awe of a creator that my finite mind will never be able to control. Mystery also compels me to live by faith. One of the things that is, uh, I like, and I went through a time where I really enjoyed apologetical studies. Uh, I was interested in those things. Honestly, I was interested at the time because I wanted to be equipped to be a warrior for Christ, right? And so if I met my buddy Travis for coffee and he had some sort of philosophical objections to Christianity, my goal was to decimate him and humiliate him in his ideology. So that at the end of that, what I thought was, he would go, oh my goodness, you're right. I've been so blind and stupid. Tell me how to be a Christian now. That scenario never worked in any of those conversations, but I continued to believe it. All I have to do is out-argue my Muslim neighbors, my gay neighbors, my Hindu neighbors, my Baptist neighbors, whoever, whatever. I was joking, Baptist. Um, and so I just had to know how to out-argue them. So I read all these apologetic books and so forth. And pretty soon I became convinced that I could live this faith without faith. That if I studied enough and got all the information I could move my Christian experience from a walk of faith to a walk of certainty. And when I abandoned the worship of Jesus in order to worship the idol of certainty, my heart began to die. It was like a little cancer that began to grow in my soul that continued to expand throughout the years because at the end of the day, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. And we will all quote that, and yet we will work very hard to make sure there's no mystery in our spirituality, that we have an answer for everything, that it explains everything. 
The spirituality of the kingdom of God will give you way more questions than it will give you answers. It will give you some answers, but those answers usually create five more questions whenever they drop down into your heart. And so this idea of mystery is critically important and we don't wanna rob ourselves from it. Now, this word mystery, what does this mean? It's the Greek word mysterion, and I try not to pronounce Greek words too often in here because I butcher them, but, but it's just fun to say mysterion um, and make a good superhero, mysterion. Um, I, there is, never mind. Um, I'm nerding out on MCU here instead of the Bible. Let's get back. Okay, in the Bible, mystery, mysterion, this is important. It is not something unknowable. That's the thing. A mystery isn't unknowable. Rather, it is what can only be known through revelation. In other words, it can only be known because God reveals it. Now, that's not to say that we can't listen to our little podcasts and read our little books and listen to our little teachers. But what I'm saying is, if, if revelation comes to you through a podcast, a book, or a teacher, it is not because of the podcast, book, or teacher. It is because the Holy Spirit was cooperating with that moment, with that information, and the Holy Spirit is causing that truth to come alive in your heart not just in your mind, but to really come alive in your heart. When you do that, you know that's, this, that's God that is at work. We're, and it's not always rational. Sometimes we're just overcome with an irra irrational sensation that we get it. We are deeply loved, and we will always be deeply loved. And there will never be a moment in which we are not deeply loved. Now, we would all say we believe that here, but there's something when God reveals it right here. That's when it begins to make a transformation into how we understand ourselves at the, at the core of our identity. So a mystery is not something unknowable. Rather, it can only be known through revelation, which is to say it can be known because God reveals it. Now think about what he is saying here in this phrase, this, the, these ideas. Up until the revelation of the new covenant, this mystery remained hidden. Listen, literally, quote, for ages and generations. This does not mean that the mystery didn't exist until the new covenant. This simply means that the mystery moved from hidden to revelation through the administration of the new covenant and the ministry of God's chosen steward, who is Paul. So this is the setup here. Is it something that was hidden? Again, it didn't, just, it didn't just get created out of thin air. It was veiled. It was hidden. Something that was hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed. And Paul says it's revealed in the coming of Jesus, in the bringing of the new covenant, and in the commissioning of Paul's own ministry to share this ministry, mystery with the Gentiles. And without further ado, here's the mystery. Verse 27. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is this mystery? It is, it is that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. For Paul, God's secret plan is not a timetable of world events. Rather, God's secret plan is a person, the living Christ. This doesn't say that Christ was not present before the revelation. 
This simply says that Paul revealed what was already true but remained hidden until the proper time. Thus, wrap our, let's, let's wrap our heads around this because this is a really important principle for our spiritual growth. The reality of Christ preceded the awareness of Christ. The re, it was a mystery, hidden, veiled. The reality of Christ preceded the awareness of Christ in this respect. It was always God's intent to reconcile and redeem both Jew and Gentile alike through the work of the Jewish Messiah. This language reveals that which the new covenant was always intended to do. The mystery is true for everyone, not just old covenant Israel. Now, we're gonna end by encouraging you to pursue some contemplative prayer exercises to take time to meditate on this truth that Christ is in you. That is your hope of glory. But before we do, I want us to take a little bit, of, a, little, a quick journey through the scriptures and put our theological hats on for just a moment. Because when we start talking about the mystery of moving from the old covenant to the new covenant, here is the transition where we begin to go from their story to our story. That's why it's very important because this is how we begin to understand in what ways we do intersect with their story. We don't intersect with their story at every point, but when it comes to the transition of old covenant to new covenant, we begin to intersect with their story. So it's important for us to understand that there was a promise given to old covenant Israel. That promise was a day when God would establish a new covenant. Now, in the original context of this prophecy back in Jeremiah and Isaiah and some other places, that's exclusively a promise that the Jewish Old Covenant Israel would have understood for the Jews. But what Paul is saying now is that we are all included in the promise of this new covenant. So let's take a quick look, go to the Old Testament and take a look at one of the places where this covenant's prophesied. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, because these new covenant pro promises and prophecies allow us to see God's intent for the religious life. It allows us to see God's intent for spirituality. It, it allows us to see what the goal has been all along. So here we are in Jeremiah and Jeremiah is prophesying, prophesying about the, the, the coming of a new covenant. And here's what he says in verse 31. Look, the days are coming. This is the who? Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Verse 33. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching where? 
within them and write it on their hearts. This is kind of easy. As you, if those of you, the clever ones have already figured out. The answers are revealed. <laughs> I will put my teaching within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Now, this new covenant discussion is absolutely critical for understanding um, a biblical or a scripturally rooted Christian spirituality. I think a lot of challenges come when we are ignorant of the difference between, differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. This new covenant is a miracle, my friends. This new covenant exists outside of the rules of the old covenant. This new covenant operates with authority above the priests and the teachers and the lawgivers and the religious experts. This new covenant, in fact, unlike the old covenant, doesn't come from without to enforce an authority. The authority of this new covenant flows from within. So spiritual transformation from a Christian perspective is not behavior modification to an external standard. Spiritual transformation is yielding to the redemptive transformation that has already taken place within. The authority of the voice of the Spirit exists in here. We don't need a holy man to climb a mountain and bring back external tablets that reveal the heart of God to us. Why? Because this is the glory of the new covenant. That is all revealed within us by the presence of the living Christ. To the extent that we try to make the new covenant look like the old covenant is the extent that we become toxic and we harm people. Because what God is doing in the new covenant is a brand new thing. And yet, Christian organizations will take their cue from the organization of the old covenant in order to administer their organizations. This is a mistake. This is why contemporary, <clears throat> contemporary Christ, Christianity, to the extent that it tries to revive the old covenant, will be utterly resistible. The reason why the book of Acts spirituality is so powerful and draws so many people in without a bunch of effort, money, and campaigns is because it's irresistible. And why is it irresistible? Because it is an inward experience of the presence of the living Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is how we're now called to live our lives. So <clears throat> the question might be asked, how are we supposed to learn, be led, and discern God's will now that we are in the age of the new covenant? 
Well, we learn, are led, and discern God's will now that we are in the age of the new covenant by awakening to the living, to, to living in awareness of the life of Christ within, a life that has already perfected Christian living. We simply follow Jesus in living the life that he modeled because this is the life that is living within us. It's living inside of us. And one of the first principles of spiritual growth that we have to understand is that we are seeking to grow in order to express more fully who we are. We are not seeking to grow in order to change who we are as though eventually we'll be disciplined enough and work hard enough that we will be the kind of people God wants us to be. No, we're instantly made the kind of people God wants us to be. The problem is there's so much baggage up here, which is why Paul says, you've got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because until your mind can believe who God has made you to be here, then you're going to be on adventures and missing the point. Because we are not striving to become, we are striving to understand who we already are and live more magnificently into that reality. We don't have to strive for it. It's already been given. Now, <clears throat> that's a bold statement. So what I want to do is take a few minutes and look at some of Jesus' statements out of the book of John to get a picture of this. Because when I grew up in evangelicalism, this, this emphasis was not clear to me at all. I'm not saying that my church hid it from me. They may have taught all of this and I just didn't get it. I'm, I'm not saying, I'm just saying that in the beginning, this wasn't clear to me. And as it has become more clear, it has radically transformed my experience of God and my approach to the faith. So first of all, John 10, 30, here's what Jesus says. I and the father are one. Now, do any of you New Testament scholars know the kinds of things that happened after Jesus said things like this? They wanted to kill him, push him off cliffs, stone him. They reacted strongly and immediately when he made these kinds of statements. And why? Because Jesus isn't saying this as a metaphor. He's expressing his Christian faith. His Christian faith begins with the affirmation, I and the Father are one. John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, it's an outworking of the statement, I and the Father are one. Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen God. John 5, 19 through 20. Jesus replied, <clears throat> I tell, truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. 
For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Again, the father and I are one. I don't act on my behalf. I act on what the father shows me he's doing and then I go participate in what he's doing. John 12, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own, but the father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. Now, look at the spirituality of the Christianity of Jesus. It's a lifestyle that flows first from this affirmation. I am one with the Father. I am one with God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I am not here on my own. I only do what the Father shows me he's doing. And I only speak what the Father tells me to speak. And then he says this remarkable thing in talking about his disciples in John 15, verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because, look at this, you can do nothing without me. Just as Jesus says, I am unable to do anything without the Father. So you can do nothing without me. And look at this beautiful picture of conversion. Conversion to a Christian faith or a Christian spirituality is not simply changing one's ideas about the things they believe. Jesus says, no, you are literally, you're being grafted into my life. You, you are a foreign branch being grafted in. And you, I don't know how many of you have ever seen or done much grafting. In my vast experience, I can let you know what I know about it in about two seconds. Uh, but I do have a son-in-law who's gonna be a, a grower, a grow, person who grows things. What are they called? Horticulturist, thank you very much. Sorry, Che, if you're watching. Horticulturalist, so that makes me a once removed expert. Um, but when they do this grafting, a lot of times they'll put like tape or something around the branch that's been grafted in. Now that's a temporary measure. And the reason why they're doing it is so that the branch is held in place. But you know what ultimately holds that branch in place? Is it the branch itself? No, it's the power of that vine giving its nourishment and its very life to that branch so that eventually that branch and that vine becomes one. And therefore, any fruit that comes from that branch flows directly from the life of the vine. You see, this is way better than 31-day challenges for spiritual transformation where you try and strive to become a better person Take 31 days to sit in silence with Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you who you are. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand God is not looking for your performance, but for your intimacy. Because if you will abide in him and allow the life of that vine to bring you in, 
you're gonna notice on the tip of your branch, fruit being born. And this fruit is gonna be life-giving. And people are gonna be able to pluck its fruit and they're gonna be able to be nourished and celebrate because of the fruit that's being born from your life. Not because you became a master of your own transformation, but because you discovered who you were and you rested in the vine and allowed the life of Jesus to be the thing that flows through you. Our goal is not to love like Jesus. Our goal is to express the love of Jesus. Those are two radically different things. So here's another way we could think of it which with this graphic. So what the incarnation tells us is that God is many, but he's one. In other words, we understand that at the heart of God, he is love, but that love is expressed through justice and wisdom and community and mercy. And the God who is one has put everything that he is into the son, Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate every December. This is what Christmas is about. The incarnation, which means the life of God becomes human. And then Paul is gonna go come along and say, now that's the model of how this works. I'm not after your ideological conversion. I'm interested in you opening up your heart and allowing yourself to be defined by the life of Christ flowing in you. So one way we might say it is God is incarnated in Christ. Christ is incarnated in his followers. In this sense, now everybody say, in this sense. Otherwise, I'll be getting too many phone calls for heresy this week. So, in this sense, the body of Christ is the return of Christ in every single generation. Now, I'm using that for its illustrative purposes. I am not saying that's what, Paul, that's what Jesus was talking about in the Olivet Discourse, but I am saying that it is really true that Christ returns on the earth in every generation that his followers actually understand who they are and they show up. This has become such a profound reality to me that although I respect it, although I honor it, Christians that say, I just, I just wanna be with Jesus, I'm just longing for him to return, I don't understand that at all. I don't feel that I'm missing out on the presence of Jesus at all. He has overwhelmingly shown himself right here. He's as close to me as the air in my lungs. But guess what? I also stand up here and I see him in this community. The tangible expressions, you all give me grace and forgiveness and understanding and rebuke and correction. You all provide all of that for me because you are who Jesus uses to bring that about in my life. So no, I, I'm, look, if God wants to shut the lights off on all this thing and however we do it, if we fly away or we all get Harley Davidsons that can go up in the air, I think all of that's great and I can pop over to the other side where I got a big, big house with lots and lots of food, right? Great, but you know what? Existentially, I can take it or leave it. 
not because I don't long for it, but because it's already been given to me. This is what Jesus did. He brought the life that is to come, the life of heaven, and he, he, he manifested it here on earth. And we get to participate in that. God is incarnated in Christ. Christ is incarnated in his followers. So, how do I respond? Well, you're of one of three categories. You've heard some of these ideas and you're saying, absolutely not. Or you're hearing some of these ideas and you're saying, I'm intrigued. Or you're saying, absolutely, I'm ready to go. Well, if you're, if you're absolutely not, that means we have a Reuben and a cup of coffee, right? And we talk. But if you're, I'm intrigued or I'm ready to go, here, is some, here are some practices that I have put in place in my own life, not to say that my way is the way, but it might be helpful to you. So the question you have to ask yourself is, how do I begin to increase my awareness of Christ in you, the hope of glory? Number one, I suggest you begin by affirming and being rather than striving and doing, which is really hard for Bible Belt evangelical Christians. You begin with affirming and doing rather and striving and believing. Now, I'm, I use all four of these lines in the mornings. I did just this morning as the sun came up, just stood before there and recited these lines until my aerobic system decided to go off and ruin the whole thing. That's my sewage system, by the way, that has a sprinkler connected to it. It ruined the divine moment for me. However, it's an apt commentary on my spirituality most of the time. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, but, but if you want, just start with two lines. And what I like about these two lines is that I can let them coincide with my breath. I recite one to myself as I breathe in and the second as I breathe out. And it's just simply this truth. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. This sounds silly and it sounds simple. If I don't do it, then I will live my, I will go about my entire day without being consciously aware of Christ. Not every day, but some days. So I begin, I am in Christ. Christ is in me. Now, for some of you, this might be where you start. You set your little timer on your phone for three minutes. And if you're really bold, stretch it to five minutes. Set that timer, turn the clock face down and just breathe and recite. Here in the presence of Jesus, I am in Christ. Christ is in me. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. And then maybe you want to extend, extend that a little bit because I have found this to be very profitable. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. Christ is one with God. I am one with God. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. Christ is one with God. I am one with God. By that, I don't mean that we, we became the creator, but by that, I mean that we live a life where humanity and divinity collide. They coincide. And we are at union with God because of Christ. Now, some of you may be a little more poetic and a little more verbose. And so you might instead like to pray the prayer of St. Patrick. It's also a longer, more eloquent prayer and a little bit less emotionally risky, I think. Christ with me, 
Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lay down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eyes that see me, Christ in the ear that hears me. Not a bad five minutes of morning devotion. So, affirmation, prayer of St. Patrick, and then the third thing is this. When facing any obstacle or dilemma, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what to do and listen for the intuitive wisdom that resides in your heart. The intuitive wisdom that resides in your heart. Now, why is that there? Because Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You are his temple. Uh, a phrase that I'll, I've stolen from a friend of mine is we have to learn to recognize and respond to our inner lucidity. That inner lucidity is the wisdom of God that's there because of the presence of Christ. Christ. 